we now uh, worship our God through the preaching of his word. Our text for this evening in, is in the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verses 27 to 30, page 1138. Philippians, chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. Hear now God's word. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now here that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that once again we can open your word. It is but sheer grace that we can have this freedom and this privilege and opportunity to sit under the preaching of your word. And so may the Holy Spirit help us receive your word with faith. Speak to us in a very personal way, in a very special way, where we are right now as your children. But may you also speak to us as your church, as your people. Be glorified through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now let me read our text again using English Standard Version, and I would like us to see some of the different renditions, and it's really interesting to see different renditions of translations. And we will be um, looking at these important words later on. We will see its significance. So let me read from the English Standard Version, Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. The NIV uh, use the words, whatever happens. The ESV use the word only. It says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We will be going back and forth with our ESV translation and our NIV as we go through our study this evening. And the sermon this morning, uh, this evening is entitled, A Manner of Life Worthy of the Gospel, or Our Gospel-Shaped Citizenship. Now, let me start by sharing this very interesting a thing that we discovered recently, unique American idioms. Unique American idioms are something my wife and I have to deal with over the past year. Last summer, we were in Minneapolis for a 12-week summer internship, and we were having dinner with this beautiful family. And I told them that uh, the Filipino spaghetti that we served them was cooked by my wife, it was heavenly, it was very good, that it has a secret sauce in it. And they asked, Why, what is it? And I said, banana ketchup. Now, it's, that's a real thing, I'm not joking. It has banana ketchup. The guy turned to me and asked me the weirdest question ever. He said, are you trying to pull my leg? Now, that was the first time I heard that question. <laughs> you see, that's not a thing in the Philippines, you know. It was, you know, it's probably his wife or my wife, but it was not me. My wife received an email, for example, with a heading, rain check, and that their meeting was canceled. So she asked me to check if it will rain that day. It did not rain that day. My wife started to list down idioms on a whiteboard for us to memorize and use. And sometimes, you know, when you practice these things, I use them sometimes awkwardly. We were at a gymnastic several months ago at the YMCA for my daughters, and I told them to break a leg. I got awkward stares after that. But here's the point. To be a Filipino in America is not a walk in the park, if you will. Cultural differences, language barriers, food, especially food. I, we, were, we were at Dean's and Michelle's house earlier, and we were talking about McDonald's, and I told them that the McDonald's in the Philippines serve rice. And that the first time we came here and went to the McDonald's, I was asking for rice. It's, basically, it's Filipinized, the American food, and Asian food here are Americanized. It's really interesting how, how we try to adopt, but there are still, of course, a lot of differences. And it takes wisdom to appropriate who you are in a foreign land. And brothers and sisters in Christ, we are foreigners in this world. This is not our home. We are pitching our tents in this wilderness as pilgrims on our way to a better city, a better home. Now, this does not mean that we drag our feet in, in the here and now on our way there. No, we are to live in a manner worthy of our eternal hope because we are gospel people. And so we have three simple points this evening. Number one, we shape 
our manner of life worthy of the gospel. The key, words for the, the key word for the kids is holy. Second point, we stand side by side for the gospel and contend against its enemies. The key word here is hold. It's a military word, and we will see that uh, later, that Paul used a military word here. And point number three, we share in our mutual sufferings for the sake of Christ and our salvation. And the key word for us is hope. I would like to turn your attention in the command in verse 7. In, in the ESV, it says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In NIV, it says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, this is the first command we read after Paul's introductory words from verses 1 to 26. You see, chapter 1, verses 1 to 26, includes the Apostle Paul's report about himself, particularly his imprisonment, right? This letter was written as a response to the concern of the believers in Philippi regarding his well-being. And while it is known that this letter is Paul's thanksgiving for the gift that the church sent him through Epaphroditus, It seems like Epaphroditus was also sent to check on Paul and at the same time bring a report about church matters, which includes issues on disunity, persecution for the sake of their faith, and issues on gospel adversaries, both inside and outside the church. Now, if you look at your Bible, I want you to notice the change in pronouns, not in a bad way, change of pronouns. <laughs> From first person to second person, change of pronoun. From I to you. Notice that because that marks this important transition. Again, not in a bad way of transition. However, if you look at the first word, I like how NIV renders it. It says, whatever happens, right? He was making an emphatic word. Whatever happens, the command that he's about to say is of first importance. And I also like how the ESV uh, rendered it as only. Because This literary form speaks of the command as first and foremost, right? Now, notice the command. It says, let your manner of life. In the NIV, it says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, that five words, those five words in ESV, let your manner of life, in the original language, it's one word in a verb form, which was also used in chapter 3, verse 20. So if you can turn with me on ch- in chapter 3, verse 20, it says here, but our citizenship is in heaven. Now, notice, in chapter 3, verse 20, it used the word citizenship, one word, 
It's the same word in chapter 1, verse 27. They have the same word. That's why the King James Version translated both words as, uh, uh, both verses as conversation. If you look at King James Version, it will tell you, let your conversation. And then in chapter 3, verse 20, the King James Version will say, but our conversation, because they are the same word. Citizenship and let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Now, the word is called politoeste, which comes from the word polis. And polis in Greek is city. That's why metropolis, Minneapolis, city of water, for example. So the word let your, so the phrase let your manner of life is a very important theme in the book of Philippians. Therefore, let your manner of life can be translated literally as citizenshiping. Now, we don't have such word, but we can translate verse 27 as, first and foremost, live according to the heavenly citizenship that you have in Christ. Or, only let the gospel of Christ shape your earthly citizenship. Again, this thematically is quite central in the book of Philippians. Because the readers of this letter live in the city of Philippi, a Roman colony during that time. Now, I am proud of Filipino spaghetti, banana ketchup, and the great boxer Manny Pacquiao. You know, Dutch people should be proud of their pastries. It's the best in the world. And your, you know, track and field world champions, if you know Femke Bull, the second fastest woman of all time. But being Roman citizens was more than just food and sports during that time. There was pride in having Roman citizenship, being people of the great Rome. Now consider this short description of the great nation of Rome. Rome's ambition knew no bounds. She waged war after war, crushing her enemies, forging alliances until she claimed the entire Mediterranean. No land was too far, no foe too formidable for her legions of iron and steel. And most importantly, there was pride under the rulership of the most powerful man in the world, Caesar, who's also called Octavius, the heir of Julius Caesar, the undisputed master of Rome, who was hailed as a hero and, their word, not mine, as a savior, and was called Augustus. And you know what Augustus means? means? It means the exalted one. It's actually believed that Julius Caesar and Augustus are deities. So you see, looking at Philippians in that cultural context, you understand now that there was a tension between Roman citizens and the new religion in the city of Philippi that preaches not only a better citizenship, but a better Lord. The true 
and exalted Savior, Jesus Christ. There was a conflict in the neighborhood. Now, if you look at verse 30 real quick, let me read uh, the rendition of NIV. I like it. It says, since you are going through, listen, the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. If you study the book of Philippians, you ask the question, what was the struggle? Now, there were at least two clear struggles that, apostle, that the Apostle Paul mentioned in chapter 1 and the other one in chapter 3. In chapter 1, there were preachers preaching the true gospel but with wrong motives, right? In chapter 3, you see false teachers, false preachers preaching a false gospel, the Judaizers. And you see, you ask the question, was Paul talking about the struggle that he has either with, with one of these two, one, true gospel preachers with wrong motive, and the other one, false gospel preachers preaching pseudo-gospel. But we then realize Paul was not talking about these issues that he mentioned in chapter 1 and chapter 3, because the conflict was not referring to those things. It referred to the conflict they saw Paul experience when? When he first went to Philippi. Remember that. Which was the persecution by the Roman government, which the believers were also experiencing from their Roman neighbors at that time. And we read that in Acts chapter 16, verse 20 to 21. So if you want to turn with me in Acts chapter 16, real quick, verses, six, uh, verses 20 to 21. Acts chapter 16, verses 20 to, to, 20, to 21. It says here, And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. This was in Philippi. And notice the word customs. Because the ESV rendition of verse 27, it says, let your manner of life. That manner has something to do with their manner and customs. And you see here the parallel that Paul was using about the citizenship in the Roman Empire and the citizenship that the believers have in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul was not trying to open a can of worms, if you will, by pressuring the believers. Paul was not saying, start a revolution. Okay? Because there were believers in the church that are still Roman citizens. And there's a conflict between their Roman citizenship, their loyalty to Rome, their loyalty to Caesar Augustus, and their heavenly citizenship, and their loyalty to Christ. And Paul was saying, you don't have to choose between the two. And what you have to do is let your Roman citizenship be shaped by 
your heavenly citizenship. This is not telling believers to abandon all the, uh, the, the, the affairs in the world. No. Right? It's actually a beautiful missional outlook. Right? He was not suggesting a rebellion against the emperor and forsaking their earthly citizenship. Instead, he was promoting a missionary outlook. And this gives substance to what it means to let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Because while primarily the gospel is always understood as the proclamation of Christ and Christ crucified, it is not mutually exclusive with our living out its implications in our day-to-day life. To be a Christian is not only to be Christ-centered in our faith, but as well as in our practice. Orthodoxy goes hand-in-hand with orthopraxis, right teaching and right practice. To be a Christian is to live liturgically, and we do that by being shaped by the gospel. And what does that mean to us is that we have to understand, brothers and sisters in Christ, that first and foremost, we are Christians before anything else. I am Christian first before I am a seminarian, before I am a father, before I am a husband. You are Christian first before you are a student, before you are a doctor or an engineer or a homeschooling mom or a neighbor. You are a Christian first. And we should live out our identity as citizens of heaven in our day-to-day life. So, beloved congregation, is your life being shaped by your heavenly citizenship? Are people drawn to you because of your Christ-like character in your workplace, in the community, and school? Does your spouse see in you and through your gospel-shaped priorities how you make decisions for your family, your patience with one another or with your kids? Are you a good and godly neighbor? We can even ask harder questions. Do you respond in kindness even to those who are rude to you or those who are unruly and ungodly? Do you humble yourself and seek peace rather than make a mountain out of a molehill in terms of disagreement with your spouse, with your employer, with an employee, or with your kids? Are your words carefully chosen when you confront others? These are some practical applications. We are to let the gospel of Christ shape our citizenship. And that means being a good and godly neighbor. And it's more than just having a beautiful lawn. It's being intentional with our desire to bring people into our lives, and in the family of Christ. Now, looking back at our text, we can also ask, 
How then should we live in a manner worthy of the gospel? And we see here an important clause in verse 7. Verse 27. So that, that in NIV, then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that. That's an important clause. And the Apostle Paul gave two evidence in verse 27b to 28 and one important principle in verse 29. So the two evidence and one principle on how to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Two evidence is also our second point. We stand side by side for the gospel and contend against its enemies. Verses 27b to 28, let me read again. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that, number one, you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Second one, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. So two evidence of living according to the gospel of Christ. Unity in the gospel and unity in the advance and the defense of the gospel. You see, unity is key here. A gospel-shaped life is first and foremost, again, the work of a church. It, if there is no ordinary possibility of salvation outside the visible church for sinners, as the Westminster Divines put it, so is the sanctification of the saints. Now, that's really interesting because when you read this verse, it seems like you can just take this out of context and apply it in your personal, private life, right? Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. But we see here two clear evidences that is founded in one important doctrine, and that is the unity of the body of Christ, because there is no living in a manner of life worthy of the gospel outside the visible body of Christ. A gospel-shaped person is not a lone person. A gospel-shaped person is first a committed church member. Consider the image Paul used in our text, standing firm and striving side by side is a military language, which again supports the citizenship theme. Now here's the point. Friendly fire causes and furthers this unity. Friendly fire is anti-gospel. We stand side by side, not on opposite sides. It is unbecoming of our true citizenship when we lack charity toward others or are divisive in our character because worldly citizenship is self-centered. The Apostle Paul has been building his case on the importance of unity in the body of Christ in chapters 1 and 2, right? The Apostle Paul mentioned his partnership with the church in Philippi in the work of the gospel, chapter 1, verse 5. He used endearing terms to highlight his love for them, such as, I hold you in my heart, chapter 1, verse 7. I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus, chapter 1, verse 8. 
His repetitive use of the terms one and the same are notable too. Standing firm in one spirit with one mind, chapter 1, verse 27. Being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, chapter 2, verse 2. And most likely, Paul also had in mind Yodia and Syntyche in chapter 4, as he also used the same expression in chapter 4, verse 3. If you notice that, he used the term side by side. When we look at the beginning of chapter 2, even the plan of redemption was realized through the united work of God the Father and God the Son as sung in the Christ hymn as we know it. The, the, the Christ hymn expresses the states of the humiliation of Christ, his humility in the incarnation and death, chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. Unity can be accomplished when there is a Christ-like humility. Charles Spurgeon said, church unity comes from corporate humility. And Paul said, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And this is foundational, brothers and sisters in Christ. To live in a manner worthy of the gospel is to have that Christ-like humility that produces unity in the body of Christ. And the second evidence then, which is the unity in the advance of the gospel against the opponents of the gospel in verse 28, which says that we are not frightened in anything by our opponents, as understood through the lens of unity in the body of Christ makes it not merely polemical. Polemical meaning it's not a language of just, de just defending our faith polemically in a sense of apologetics, but as a community, as people of God. As 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 says, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now here's our point. Therefore, our unity is a clear sign of the opponent's destruction, verse 28. So the manner of life worthy of the gospel is a life immersed in the community of the body of Christ. And it is a self-giving life. Come to think of it, we need the purity of the church, right? And the more we give ourselves to others, the less and less we have left to give to the world. So how do we live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ? by being like Christ in his humility and living a self-giving life. Hence, unity leads to godliness. So standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel makes the church militant. Now for our third point, we share in our mutual sufferings for the sake of Christ 
and our salvation. We see that in verses 29 to 30. The one principle that the Apostle Paul taught in verse 29 is foundational in living out the evidence of a manner of life worthy of the gospel. Let me read verse 29. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. The NIV used the word granted. The ESV used the same word granted. The King James Version used the word given. But the more accurate translation would be graced, G-R-A-C-E-D, because the word comes from the word charis in the original language, which means grace. It has been grace to you. But all of them, of course, teach another beautiful oxymoron. Consider this translation. God graced you, not only with the new life in Christ, but God also graced you a life of suffering for the sake of Christ. And that's really interesting because it's, it means to say that to suffer for the sake of Christ is grace. Suffer and grace. Wow. God graced us with trials and troubles and tribulations for the, for the sake of Christ to sanctify us. But not only that, but also to use us and our sufferings to help in the sanctification of others in their sufferings. Now, let's read verse 30 again and put that in mind. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. You know, what, you know what I see here? I see Paul, the Apostle Paul, as a proud pastor. Brothers and sisters, you are now experiencing the same struggle I had when I first went there to proclaim the gospel. This, th that, is the, that is the tone of verse 30. Engage in the same conflict, both the Philippians and Paul. And Paul said that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. There was consolation in their mutual sufferings. The persecution that both of them received because of living in a manner worthy of the gospel was purposed by God to grow them, use them as consolation for one another, and even advance the gospel. Now look at chapter 1, verse 12. Paul said here, Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, his imprisonment, by the way, has really served to advance the gospel. That is fascinating, brothers and sisters in Christ. And we call that the doctrine of God's providence. During COVID, the persecutions in China got worse. But according to uh, according to a reliable source, that for the past 10 years, there, are, there have been more converts in China compared to anywhere in the world. 
during COVID, if you're following the, the news, churches were, churches were destroyed. Pastors were thrown into the prisons. Elders were, um, were 24 hour being, uh, they have a surv- uh, surveillance to the elders and the, the people in the church. They would not let the church gather together. But the believers would go in public and sing hymns. They would still find ways to worship. They are persecuted really bad. But they've never seen such growth in the past past century in China. That's amazing. Their unity in the gospel, going back to our passage, their unity in the gospel partnership in the gospel, the advance of the gospel, the defense of the gospel, and the application of the gospel, listen, brothers and sisters in Christ, were made possible not despite, but because of suffering for the sake of the gospel. Their sufferings were providential in order to grow them in their faith in order, in order to grow the gospel work in the city of Philippi. God used the sufferings to advance the gospel. Suffering for the sake of Christ is not only the spark that starts the fire, but the fuel that feeds the flame of a gospel-shaped life. Consider the Apostle Paul. He was in prison when he wrote this letter. He was unsure if he could still make it out alive. Right? There were people, Christians, who were trying to afflict him by proclaiming the gospel with wrong motives. There were still Judaizers in the churches that he planted in Macedonia, teaching a false gospel, which brought great pain to him. There were conflicts among brethren, pioneers, who planted this church in Philippi. There were those people whom he worked side by side, but has deserted him for the world. But we all know the book of Philippians is known to be a book about joy. Paul was reformed. He was aware of God's providential work. He saw sufferings as opportunity to even share the gospel to the guards who were guarding him. The apostle Paul was a man of sorrow, but the book of Philippians is also known to be about Christian joy. The apostle Paul has set his eyes on eternal things, and that is why it changed the way he sees everything else in the here and now. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are gospel people. We are hopeful people. That changes even the way we see the trials and troubles in this world. Consider Paul, but consider Christ and his sufferings. Consider our salvation. Our salvation was accomplished through the suffering of Christ. 
First, the Father has made His Son to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Our union with Christ unto life was preceded by His union with us in our sin and death. Romans 6, 5-6 God had forsaken His Son first so we can be accepted as His children. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 5. God, God abandoned His Son first so we can be found. Matthew 27, 46. God gave up His Son to die first so we can receive life. 2 Corinthians 5, 15. Christ chose to be lonely and isolated on His way to Calvary's cross first so we could have fellowship with His heavenly Father and dine in the heavenly places. There is therefore now no condemnation for you and me because Christ has drunk from the hand of the Lord and the cup of His wrath. Isaiah 51 verse 17. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 7, 25. And Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 to 5, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his tribes we are healed. To live a gospel-shaped citizenship is to embrace our suffering. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let us not waste our sufferings. Let us manifest a life that is, is a citizenship of heaven to the glory of God, the praise of Jesus Christ, the edification of our brothers and sisters in Christ, and the proclamation of the gospel to the world. Beloved congregation, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let us pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, as we live in a manner of life worthy of the gospel, may you help us in our weaknesses, in our shortcomings. May you help us to strive to grow in our knowledge of grace and to strive to grow in our con conformity in the image of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us to be humble. Help us to be self-giving people. Help us to consider others. Help us to find ways how we can build one another in the faith. Help us to stand side by side for the gospel and contend against its enemies. Help us to stand against injustice. Help us to stand against liberalism. Help us to stand against worldliness. And Father, help us to be believers that are bold in our proclamation of the gospel, even if that means we will suffer. Help us as well as we 
have our own sufferings in our lives, in our family, in our marriage, in, in our church. Help us to trust in you and see and use these sufferings as opportunity to grow in our Christ-like character, to grow in our love for you and for your people and for your gospel work. Help us to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.